0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, lonely nights hitchhiking, frightening nights addled by the moon, never ending nights under a city on a planet far, far away, and a beautiful illuminated sheepskin commemorative certificate to remind you where you've been. Plus part 38 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All. Right. Now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane editor Tony Daniel. This time we talked with Catherine Asaro about her new novel, Undercity. This is the start of a new series set within Catherine's Scholian universe the Major Bajan series. It's kind of a noir science fiction hard-boiled mystery, and kind of a life-changing journey for Bajan back to her origins on the mean streets of the undercity, that is, the city literally under, the city of cries. Also, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's hard magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. Now, here's the news. The December free fiction and nonfiction is now posted on the Bain.com website, and we have some very good stuff for you this month. First, we have a very moving story, following the coming of age of a very lonely young man. This is The Night Don't Seem So Lonely by Sharon Lee. It's set in the world of her contemporary fantasy Archer's Beach series. Sharon's latest Archer's Beach novel, Carousel Seas, will be out in January. Also in December, fantasy author David B. Coe delivers a great story of mystery and magic set in the world of his upcoming contemporary fantasy mystery novel, Spellblind. David has a couple of best-selling epic fantasy series with another publisher. He also writes as D.B. Jackson, but here he is firmly in the present, or at least a present where magic users war for turf and one former cop and present-day P.I., is caught in the middle, seeking justice. The story is Long Night's Moon by David B. Coe. Finally, we have a most wonderful nonfiction essay this month that I really encourage you to check out. This is A Medieval Artist in the 21st Century by Randy Asplund. Randy is the go-to Bain cartographer, but he is also a world-class historical recreator of book elimination, and manuscript recreation from the Middle Ages using all original materials, workmanship, etc. In the piece, Randy details how getting it just right, even if that involves growing and harvesting your own woad, became a passion for him, and where it has led him. And he talks a lot about how medieval books were created, and that is just fascinating. The Night Don't Seem So Lonely by Sharon Lee, Long Night's Moon by David B. Coe, and A Medieval Artist in the 21st Century by Randy Esplund are now free to read and enjoy on the main page at Bain.com. I want to welcome Catherine Asaro. Is it Asaro or Asaro, Catherine? I've been wondering a long time. It's Asaro. Catherine Asaro to the podcast. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Catherine Asaro is actually... Dr. Catherine Asaro, She has a Ph.D. in chemical physics from Harvard. She's a former ballet and jazz dancer and founded the mainly jazz dance program at Harvard. She also sings. She's the winner of two Nebula Awards for her science fiction and the creator of the popular Scholian Saga, which includes Bane Books, The Ruby Dice, Diamond Star, and Carnelians. She's also the author of Near Future, SF Adventures Alpha, which I really loved when I read it uh, some years ago, and Sunrise Alley. Now Catherine has returned to the Scolian universe to tell a gritty tale of kidnapping and murder set in an underground city filled with societal outcasts. The sub-series within the Scolian universe is called Scolian Empire Major Bajan series, I believe. We're calling it, with the first entry, Under City. That's the name of the book, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. Catherine, what led you to set this novel, which is kind of a noir science fiction mystery uh, story in the Scolian universe? Well,
2: you know, at the time when I first wrote The City of Cries, that was a novella which I used for the first few chapters of. Uh, City. It's not quite the same as the novella, but it's based on it. Uh-huh. That was actually um, commissioned by Mike Resnick for a anthology he was doing called Down These Dark Spaceways. And the idea was to write um, science fiction mysteries with the feel of, you know, the old-style mysteries, like Raymond Chandler, that kind of, of author. And at the time, I was doing quite a bit of Skolian Empire uh, stories, so it just seemed natural to explore the the grittier side of the Skolian Empire. Most of my other books involved the the Ruby Dynasty, which, because they are, you know, the ruling Dynasty or descended from the ruling Dynasty, that's not the gritty side of the universe. So I wanted to look at the other um, different types of characters you know, explore a side and, a uh, world worlds and communities that I hadn't yet had a chance to write about. I know I had a great time doing it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So I started from a, from a novella or a, a short story.
2: Yeah. The original short story was called the city of Christ and it won a lot of awards. Um, And I always had been curious to explore more beyond that story. So um, it seemed tailor-made when I talked to my agent. She said, why don't you write something with that character, Major Bajan? And before I knew it, the story just uh, unfolded in
1: my mind. Well, I'm glad that uh, she suggested that. So uh, Bajan is not on the planet where most of the story takes place at the beginning, and there's a wonderful uh, opening sequence where um, somebody shows up to take her to Relican, uh, which is the, the planet she's from. In fact, she never intended to return there again. Why didn't she want to go back to her home planet? Well, you know,
2: Bajan grew up in the Undercity. That's the, the reason the whole book is named that is because the Understudy is its own community. It's very shady, uh, beyond the law, under the ground. And it's just very, always in flux. You know, it's part of the city of Christ itself, which is a very uh, wealthy city above the ground. But it's the part that they don't acknowledge exists. Uh, there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of crime. That's one of the reasons it's always in constant flux, because various criminals are coming down and trying to make their mark, and, and the smugglers are there, the drug dealers are there. And that's where she grew up, as an orphan without a family. So she was part of a gang. Uh, they called themselves the Dust gang. And it was a very grueling existence. Uh, she knew, She almost never even went above ground. She essentially grew up in the dark. Um, They do have lights down there, but that was the most she saw of light, both literally and metaphorically. So when she got out by enrolling in the Army, and she managed to, not only did she enroll in the Army, I mean, um, (laughs) you can tell I've been teaching school, I'm saying enroll. (laughs) She (laughs) went into the Army, and she was able to do what is, Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: she didn't even know where she was going at the beginning of the,
2: she uh, took the job knowing that she thought uh, it was criminal, actually. And that's why they were being so shady about their job.
1: Well, she finds herself in the royal apartments of uh, its Maja, the house that sort of rules this world. That's right. The house
2: of Majda is... Probably the second most powerful family in the scoring Empire. The most powerful is the Ruby Dynasty, of course. Mm. Um, technically, the, the what we call the Empire, the Imperialate, isn't actually ruled by the Dynasty anymore. Uh, it's they have an assembly, and that assembly is elected. But the Dynasty still has a great deal of power and influence on the politics. After them, the, uh, the House of Majda is the next most powerful, and they are, you don't mess with them, to put it mildly. And she knows of them because they their uh, ancestral
1: home is on Malachon, the world where she grew up. The reason that Majda and the Ruby Dynasty are powerful is not necessarily just because they're—they have a long monarchical tradition, but there are forms of telepathy in this universe. And these guys are able to create... Let me see if I got this straight. They can make the instantaneous communication network that other people can use, other telepaths can use, and they're extraordinarily rare. Is that accurate? That pretty much sums it up. When I
2: was... I started writing, actually writing these books about the schooling empire when I was working on my doctoral thesis at Harvard in theoretical physics... And I was doing a lot of things with these mathematical transformations called uh, Fourier transforms. I was playing with things called Hilbert spaces in mathematics. And so my mind was constantly going between the books that I was writing and the math that I was doing for my doctorate. And so I got curious, well, what would happen if you applied, you know, if you could make these mathematical universes that I write about? I mean, they're not really mathematical universes. They're mathematical creations of spaces that are described by functions. And I thought, what if you could do that in real life? If somehow people could actually visit these spaces? And I realized right away, of course, it's a mathematical space. You're not physically going to go there. But the way I work it out in the Scoring Empire books is people can go there with their minds. And the process of transforming from our universe to this place, I call it the Kyle space, is essentially a, a physical manifestation of transforming a mathematical function from one space to another. So essentially they're dealing with their minds, and I even wrote about it in the back of one of the, the books, I think it was, um, either the moon shadow or a spherical harmonic, I w- wrote about how, you know, a, a what if of how that might work to do a, a transformation like that. And it only works on thought, it doesn't work on the physical bodies. So they can transform their thoughts into this space where your position is determined by what you're thinking rather than your physical position. And the advantage of all that long, windy explanation is that your proximity to another person in this place is determined by. you're discussing with that person, the thoughts that the two of you are having are what puts you next to each other, not physically where you're located. So it makes instantaneous uh, communication across interstellar distances possible. So, of course, if they have this advantage, it allows them to communicate across um, these huge distances that define this civilization called going and carry right.
1: thing about the rich guys in the universe before we, we go on to Undercity. Uh, the, the Majda um, house is, is very matriarchal um, and it's really cool sort of the rules you set up for this. Um, why would anybody want to kidnap? Uh, part of the story revolves around the kidnapping of a prince and these princes are in are, are rare specimens indeed. Uh, why would anybody want to pri- kidnap Prince Daesh? Um He's just a man after all.
2: Just to set up the, the background, the matriarchy was originally, thousands of years past, was based, um, the women were the were warrior queens in a, a less civilized time of the the empire. And they, they kept their men, their princes, in seclusion. And they went out and conquered worlds. So it's a bit of a role, uh, more than a bit, of a role reversal there. Well, they were, to lay the background for the Scolian Empire, some beings, and it's still a mystery, it's one of the mysteries that hasn't been solved in the, the, um, the series yet, is that some beings, that we don't know who they are, came to Earth during um, thousands of years ago, and took uh, a group of people from Earth, in a large group, I mean a lot of, of Inhabitants of Earth and moved them to this planet, planet Raylakon. They moved them in both time and space. In our past, it was probably about a thousand years ago. A lot of them were Mayans, and it was roughly at the height of the Mayan Empire, which is uh, is not that long ago. But they moved them in time and space both, so that when they got them to Raylakon, and they also moved, transformed them to another universe. They were about six thousand years in the past of the original universe, and so one of the mysteries is why did these beings do that, and what happened to them? Because all that's left are you know the ruins of their starships on the, the shores of the vanished sea, which is where the city of City of Christ became uh, uh, came into existence. So this group. Developed as a matriarchy, they're very uh, <laughs> delicate, actually, uh, and they set out to figure out, you know, what had happened to them, and could they somehow get off the planet and return to this legendary place called Earth, where they had come from? And they essentially raided the the libraries on these ships, and they learned. They struggled to learn how to, to use science. They didn't do it very well. They established an empire. The empire lasted for a few hundred years, an interstellar empire, and then it collapsed. And that empire was the matriarchy. Then you have about between three and 4,000 years, where essentially it's a dark ages. And during that time, you know, civilization is coming into uh, developing on Earth. So by the time they redeveloped star travel, they become a more egalitarian society. So, really, the city of Christ, I mean, it's been a a few hundred years since they've uh, rebuilt their empire, the Interstellar Empire. And the city of Christ, the story, takes place in a society that, by that time, is pretty much egalitarian. The women still tend to control the, the means of power and authority more than men do, but it's very similar to you know, our culture and that women have made, in this culture, have made so many advances. Um, and that's what you see, I'm uh, mirroring it with role reversal in the Scoring Empire. So most everybody, you know, people expect equal rights. But these noble houses are a throwback to the ancient empire when they were very, you know, barbaric and intense warrior race. And the monsters who, I mean, they're not warrior queens. Well, they are in the sense that a lot of them go into the military, the interstellar military. But their empire is more financial now. But they still follow the old traditions of keeping their princes in seclusion. I mean, almost well, nobody else does this, there's like, you know, a few noble families and that's it. But they're very rigid about it. You don't touch their princes. You don't look at it. The princes are secluded. And they're considered extremely valuable in the way that something you can't touch or ever see is valuable. And this Prince, Dage is, you know, he wants a life. Mm -hmm. He's living in an environment where he has very little contact with anyone
1: outside this incredible palace where he lives. Well, let's talk about the Undercity and and, um, the main setting for the novel, which lies literally beneath the City of Christ. Can you explain the physical setup of the place uh, known as Undercity? How is it related to cries? Yes. You've done a little bit of that.
2: Okay. During the time, in the very beginning, when these people were taken from Earth and stranded on this planet, it was a very different kind of technology that they encountered than what we take for granted now. That is the technology that led to the building of uh, the city Raylakan. I mean, the city of Christ on Raylakan was a technology that even modern-day scholars don't understand that well. They're still trying to solve the mysteries of the origins of the city, and one of the mysteries is this immense system of aqueducts that are under the desert. The city of Cries is located in a desert. It's on the shores of the Vanished Seas, which is called the Vanished Sea because it no longer has any water. It's huge, but the planet is dying. It was obviously terraformed by someone before the humans came. And the terraforming is gradually over the millennia. It's been failing. So there's this huge system of aqueducts under the city, but no water runs in them. You know, there's a little bit of water. I mean, there's streams that run through there. There's underground, uh, very kind of acrid mineral lakes. But the aqueducts are empty, and they're huge. I mean, Baj mentions at one point that she doesn't understand why they call them aqueducts, because the amount of water that it would take to run in these aqueducts is so big, there's no way, you know, there's no way you could have this huge amount of water running through there all the time. So one of the mysteries, which is not solved in this particular book, it's a background, is why are those aqueducts there? But the fact is these ancient, millennia-old aqueducts network, they're under the city, they're under the desert. They've been mapped out by archaeologists at the university in cries, but nobody really knows their fault.
1: It's cool. The, I mean, the feeling that I got was kind of like they're crawling all around on the inside of a giant dragon or something, that, that they can't quite grasp what it all means and what it's for. Um, the concourse, this is kind of the interface between uh, Undercity and Cries. That's right. What, um, it, and, a lot, and, and it's important in the story. Uh, what is that place?
2: some stairs from a plaza at the edge of the city, and you're walking into the concourse. And it's really more of a touristy, uh, very wide boulevard with, you know, at the beginning, it's it's actually rather uh, ritzy. It's got clubs and, you know, dance places and restaurants and cafes and bistros. And then as you go down, it's just sloping down slightly, but it goes on for more than a kilometer. And it gets less and less ritzy and more and more poverty stricken. And you know the restaurants give way to little little um, booths and stalls. And by the time you get to the end, it's this very narrow, smoky uh, alleyway essentially that opens up into a like the entrance of a cave, and then that leads down to the true undercity. And the place, even though the concourse is supposed to be part of the undercity, if the, the kids or the people from the undercity actually go up there, the police chase them away, right? Because they don't want them ruining the tourist business. When people come to visit Christ; they think they're going to this, you know, shady, dangerous place when they go to the concourse, but it isn't really. It's a
1: tourist uh, tourist place. Yeah. Well, Bajan left, uh, but. She left Undercity, but her childhood and teenage duster gang—they uh, call themselves—stayed. Some have gotten along okay, but some not so well. Um, one of the most interesting is her former love interest, Jack. Now he's the proprietor—he's uh, the proprietor of an interesting nightclub, the Black Mark, um, which which is very hard to find, right? <laughs>
2: casino and gambling is against the law on, on in the city of Christ railcon is very conservative the planet is one of the, or, or the, the city of Christ, which is really the only there's not many places where people live on the planet anymore because most of it is not particularly uh, amy- uh, amy- uh, good for human life the city of major city with the only major starport and it's very discreet about it so you can't go to his casino unless you know he, he tells you how to get there you have to be invited and he's constantly moving it so even if you knew where it was say two months ago you could probably couldn't find it today
1: yeah well he's he's a very winning character he's kind of bogarty perhaps in a way although he's
2: yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> he's in some ways quite a amoral I mean, he has absolutely no problem with running this illegal casino. But he's also a very decent human being underneath that. And he tends to support the community by hiring the people who have no sources of income. Since The the people in the undercity that can't get jobs in the upper city, there's extreme prejudice against them. And it's very difficult for them to... um, To get any kind of employment or interaction or schooling or anything with the above city, it was very difficult for Bodge to enlist in the Army because of that. Jack offers jobs. He looks out for the people. He tries to make sure that his employees are well fed, that their families are looked after, that they get proper medical care. So even though, in a sense, he's a villain, I mean, in the sense that he's doing things he's not supposed to do, but he's not really. Very complicated
1: character. Well, somebody who's not that complicated or, or um, yeah. not not that sane is Scorch, um, who's a bit of a whack job. How did she survive in the Undercity? How does because um, that she really is sort of the the underside of the Undercity in a way. Yeah.
2: Scorch survived by being meaner. More malicious and more vicious than everybody else, and she's smart. I mean, Scorch may be uh, psychotic, but she's also brilliant. And so she turned her psychosis to, you know, being rising to become one of the the most powerful undercity crime bosses. She never, she isn't one of the biggest ones. She's kind of in the second tier because. You know, there's a point where you become so vicious that it's hard to get people to follow you. You know, her employees have a tendency to get killed. Mm -hmm. So she's been successful, in part because she's gotten rid of a lot of her competition. But ultimately, there's limitations to how far she could go. Actually, one of Baj's former gang members has probably become the most powerful understate
1: crime lord. Which would be, uh, a Dig John, Art. Or...
2: Yes, yes, yeah, that's right. Dig John was, here, and, uh, there were four of them in the gang that, uh, bars ran with. It was Dig John, Kachda, and, um, Jack. Rajan's uh, lover and then another guy named Gord this very large very smart uh, young man who became well he's they call him the water man or Gord in uh, the undercity because he builds water filtration systems and Baj, it takes Baj leaving the planet you know getting an education off world she herself has a degree in engineering and then coming back to realize he's brilliant. He's a brilliant engineer, but it's all self-taught, you know. And he helps, you know, build things that make the undercity livable. That's one of the, the things he does. So he's still there, and he's doing quite well. He's very hard to find. Jack is still there. Big John is still there. She's risen to become. She's probably one of the two most powerful crime bosses in the Undercity. She's a drug runner. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons Baj left, because she couldn't handle the direction that her closest... I mean, Dick John was her family, more than just her friend. That was the only family that Baj had. And when she saw the direction that Dick John was going, she realized she didn't want that. And that's when she left. She left when she was 16 to enlist in the Army.
1: Well, the, talk about the kids a little, because Baj is, a lot of the story and a lot of the feeling in the story it comes from Baj really caring about these kids that are still in the Undercity, um, and that relationship drives the second part of the book in particular. She was one of them. Uh, what was it like to grow up as a kid in, in the Undercity?
2: Very intense. <laughs> they didn't have access to regular schooling. They didn't have access to any of the infrastructure that most of us take for granted. They had, um, you know, things like schools and support systems and traditional families. There's very little of that in the Undercity. They tend to run in gangs, um at least the, the community that she was part of. There were four of them in the gang. The gang tends to be loosely affiliated when they're children with adults. But because the survival rate is not very high in the undercity, there's a lot more children than there are adults. The adults tend to, there's a flux in and out of the undercity. It's not a, a separate, um, you know, sphere, completely separate sphere from the upper city. There's a lot of flux in and out. So there's always adults, Some, but usually they're criminals coming down to get involved in the, the black market. Um, people who've lived there all their lives and who have, you know, grown up there, there are families or, or familial lines that have been down there for for centuries, millennia even, they re- begin to realize. And they've evolved their own cultures. Even physically, in some ways, they're different. The ones who live the farthest down can't even... You know, they have to cover their eyes, protect their eyes when they come up into the light. And for Barzan, that's what she grew up with. This is the environment she grew up in. Uh, Very gritty, but at the same time, she formed very strong ties with the people in her group. They looked after each other. The kids essentially took care of each other. And they usually had a person who was, you know, adults, a few adults that were you know, helped look after the children. But the children tended to run in packs on their own, and that's what she did. They did learn. They taught themselves. Uh, They learned by direct interaction with their environment and also by knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation. Some of it for, you know, ages and ages, longer than most of them realize. So when she comes back, and she goes down into the undercity, and of course the people who live there know she's an outsider, right? At least in the sense that she clearly comes from the above city, mm-hmm. but she knows how to fit in because she grew up there. So they, they watch her warily. I was just going to say, over the course of the book, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but this develops. Over the course of the book, as you know, she thinks through the problems and tries to come up with solutions. And she's in a unique position, having grown up there, one of the few people who was quite successful, who was able to get out, become quite successful, and then has come back. So you know, she's in a rather unique position to do something.
1: Yeah. Well, it's um, what what makes it fun and a fun read is also that um, they just. Are not able to take advantage of her because of her background, and and they, and they gain this respect for her because, you know, they're not going to be able to uh, to roll her, or kill her, or anything. First time, that's right. Yeah, the first time someone tries
2: to mug her, they get a bit of a surprise. They don't realize she's a cybernetically enhanced, super high trained. You know, military, former military officer yeah. who was essentially the equivalent of a high tech futuristic
1: commando, yeah. and uh, she also <laughs> knows she also knows exactly what they're up to. It's because she's from there. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a great scene. Um, All these enhancements in her body, too. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things, uh, if you want to speak to it a, a little bit, is the way that she has um, Max her AI in her head that, that helps her out, and her, her little surveillance devices. Um, that was kind of cool sub-part of the book. What? How does that work?
2: Well, you know, I figured by the—we're already, just in real life, you know, we're already looking at things to enhance, you know, technological enhancements of, you know, military personnel. And I thought, all right, you know, we have to extend this into the future— And, of course, we're going to incorporate more and more um, technological augmentation into our bodies. She has quite a bit. She has uh, biohydraulics that um, enhance her strength and her reflexes and her speeds. Of course, this all has to be run by uh, an energy source. You can't do it without some sort of input of energy. She has a microfusion reactor in her body. So she's quite a piece. And she is considered, as a former military office, in a sense, part of the the uh, advanced department of the military. Um, it's because she rose to be uh, a major in the Army, she has a pretty good system. And it includes uh, enhanced vision. It includes enhanced hearing, um, augmentation so that she can see, for example, in infrared. Um, And she's got Max, an AI that is implanted in in her spine, in her neural system, intertwined with her neural system. Um, I won't go into all the details. I worked all this out when I first began writing the Skolian Empire books, and I I got input from various, not only from military uh, types, but also from uh, neuroscientists to figure out how something like that would actually work if we had the neurotechnology to... Create a a system to meld an artificial intelligence with uh, with the human neural system. So she's got, uh, she has that, and she calls him Max, and
1: they have a lot of conversation. He's essentially a character in the book. Yeah, he's very droll.
2: She sometimes, yes. Well, he knows her well. He knows her well, and he's developed a personality. She hasn't quite figured out if it's a real personality. Or if he just you know, he's such a good IA he developed a personality able to deal with her. But it's kind of a moot point. Mm. You know, she he interacts with her as if he is a, a, a sentient being.
1: Yeah, he passes the uh the touring the smart aleck part of the touring test as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does do that. So what are what are you working on at the moment? Where uh are we going to see more of Major vajan What's uh, what's up in your writing universe? Well, yeah,
2: I'm currently putting together a, a, another book with Major Bajan. It's a slightly different, um, slightly different kind of case, but it also is going to take place on Lacon. I want to expand what's going on within the Undercity. You know, she has this. Uh, I don't want to give it away, but she started something there. And although it was a major part of the book Undercity, it was a bit in the background. It wasn't, you know, the major story was the mystery and then its solution and then the new bigger mystery that created. But always in the background is what this, uh, her interactions with the Undercity and the young people there. And I would like to develop that more. I mean, there's hints of it especially at the end of Undercity. One of the last few paragraphs where, you know, we get a hint of what the future is of what she's just started. And I'd like to play that one,
1: too. The book we've been discussing is Undercity by Catherine Asaro. Asaro sorry. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, well, thank you. And now, here is Part 38 of the Complete Audiobook Serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the Complete Audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex con and an active heavy, the type of active who controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grimnoir Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with Part 38 of the Complete Audiobook Serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic.
0: CHAPTER 16 As an eminent pioneer in the realm of high-frequency currents, I congratulate you on the great success of your life's work, but I am of the sad belief that your peace ray may have been inappropriately named. Albert Einstein, letter to Nikola Tesla for Tesla's 75th birthday, 1931 MAR Pacifica, CALIFORNIA Been a long time, Jake, his brother said, still blocking the rifle barrel. Sullivan looked past the ruined face to where Delilah was lying on her back, hands pressed against her stomach, blood leaking between her fingers. Go to hell, Matty, he snarled, reaching for his power and spiking it hard. Magic crashed against magic. It's Maddie now. His teeth gnashed together behind ruined lips as he fired his own power. Gravity collided and ruptured around them. Matthew was my old name, my weak name. I had to take a new one as an iron guard. Remember where he came from? Yeah, Jimmy had a hard time with T's. The destroyed body of the summoned and the rubble around it fell into the sky, Delilah screamed as she was shoved across the lawn. Heinrich was heading their way when he suddenly tumbled backward, flailing toward the house. I forgot how strong he was. I got baptized in the blood of the innocent, the only decent Sullivan there's ever been. Maddie's tie was whipping around his face, torn back and forth as the pull of the earth shifted. Our brother deserved better. You think Jimmy would want this? Sullivan hissed as the ground underfoot began to sink. Water from the broken pipes spun weightless around them. His power had already been used hard on the demon and he could feel it weakening. He was too good and pure and dumb to know what he wanted. Maddy didn't even seem to feel the strain. Heat was radiating from his body as dozens of kanji burned magic. But he was strong. We all were, but we gave our lives to protect the pathetic... They used us. And how'd they thank us? You saved a thousand lives and you come home to what? Going to prison because you tried to keep some active kid from getting lynched? Like you would have cared. His pulse was pounding inside his skull. It was almost like he could see the line of power stretching from his soul to the center of the earth and it was flickering bad. He was almost done. They didn't even waste a healer to fix my face. Whole unit only had a few healers. They did just enough to keep you from dying. It's called triage, dummy, Jake said. Maddie had too much power. With the forces buffeting them, the first to slip would be crushed. You always the ugly one anyways. Maddie laughed. And you were always supposed to be the smart one. Suddenly, Maddie dropped his power, but rather than being smashed by the sudden increase in pressure, his body flared in strength like a brute as he took the hit. The dirt around them exploded outward in a shower. Sullivan staggered back, surprised. Who's the smart one now? Maddie asked as he slugged Sullivan in the face. Sullivan rocked back. The blow rattled his thickened bones. Maddy kept coming, hitting him over and over and over again, moving faster than was humanly possible. It was like being worked over by a meat hammer. See, Jake, I'm the strongest there is. I've got the magic of ten actives now. What you got? He knocked Sullivan's return punch aside with one casual forearm. Sullivan ducked a hook, falling on his butt, then jerked up the bar and fired. The magazine had mostly been expended on the summoned, but at least five rounds struck Maddie in the chest, exiting his back in gouts of meat and fabric. His brother fell, crashing hard into the ground. Sullivan lay there gasping, bleeding, his head was swimming from the beating. He had just killed his own blood. Then Maddie got up. Ah, uh, yeah, felt that one. Blood was pouring from the holes in his chest. Sullivan scrambled back as Maddie strode toward him. Like I was saying, I'm the strongest. He slammed a boot into Sullivan's chest, rolling him hard. I can see that pissant little healing spell on your chest. You think that makes you a big man or something? He booted him again. Shit, I got five of those. He managed to get to his hands and knees, but Maddie's next kick landed in his ribs and lifted him several feet off the ground. Maddy is here, Faye shouted as she appeared in what was left of the foyer. We know, Garrett said, pointing with one bloodied hand toward where a maelstrom of water, dirt, concrete, and fog was swirling across what had been the lawn. It was terrible to behold. Somewhere inside there were the two titans slamming each other with powers beyond comprehension. Heinrich appeared, carrying Delilah's limp form in his arms. She seemed so very small, and there was blood all over the German's coat. Jane, Jane, he shouted. Help! He set her down gently where the piano had been. One second, Jane replied. She was crouched next to Mr. Browning, who was bleeding profusely from a bullet wound to his neck. Keep pressure on her, Heinrich. Help the girl, Browning whispered, his teeth stained red. I'm fine. No offense, John, but shut your yap and don't tell me how to do my job," Jane responded calmly. Her hands glowing like molten gold. Lance shrugged past Fay, working the action on his Winchester. Undead are coming. All those assholes we killed once are back up and moving this way fast. Heinrich closed his eyes and let out a long string of something that Fay could only assume was profanity. Zombies. They've got their damned necro. A Lazarus. Grandpa's Bible teachings hadn't been very good, but Fay didn't remember any of the dead people who came back to life in the New Testament going insane with a desire to kill like the radio show said this kind did. On the other hand, she'd slept through a lot of masses. I got the one with the demon. If I shoot the man with the zombies, will that make the magic stop? She asked. Nein, I'm dead the different. Heinrich said as he shoved what had once been the living room curtains against Delilah's wound. Their spirits can't leave their bodies. They have been chained forever. How do we stop them? Fay asked. The same show on the radio had made it sound like you could just shoot them in the head and they'd leave you alone, but she knew that those programs were just make-believe. This was real. You can't. You just damage them until they can no longer move, but it's difficult when they are still sane and have guns. How many, Lance? Probably twenty undead. I don't know how many alive. More than we can handle, Heinrich stated with grim finality. The Lazarus will whisper to them that the only way to end the pain is to destroy us. Poor bastards don't even realize they're dead yet. The way the others acted when he said that made Fay certain that the German was their expert on zombies. The storm of flying debris finally stopped, and everything instantly fell as gravity returned to normal. All of them turned to see who had won, and sadly, all they saw was Mr. Maddie kicking Mr. Sullivan across the yard like a child's ball. Behind the two giants was a crowd of mangled bodies running right for them. The dead men were shrieking and crying, bones visible, flesh hanging off in strips where the slugs had hit, eyes bulging out of shattered skulls, bullet holes fresh and puckered in drained skin, white shards sticking out of broken limbs. And somehow she knew that they could still feel it all, every terrible, unending ounce of hurt. And all those dead men held her and her friends responsible, The dead lifted their guns and Faye's insides turned to water. Maddie grabbed Sullivan by the throat and jerked him from the ground. Hell, Jake, his brother said, punching him in the stomach. I had this all built up in my head like you were going to be a challenge. This is just like when we were kids. Sullivan blinked through the blood and tears. He grabbed Matty by the tie, pulled him forward, and rammed his elbow into the side of his head. Matty dropped him and stepped back, rubbing his face, grinning savagely. That's more like it. Sullivan stood shakily, spit a blob of blood, and raised his fists. You always were a bully. You ain't seen nothing yet, Matty said. He paused as his watch spoke to him with a woman's voice. He lifted it and listened. Hell, Fun as this has been, I'm about to fry this whole area with a peace Ray. You're distracting me from my mission. You seen a piece of a Tesla device around here? Sullivan stepped forward, put his weight into it, and swung a big right at Matty's face. Matty dodged it so quickly that the air whistled around him. He responded by clubbing Sullivan effortlessly to the ground. Guess not. Sullivan gasped as a heavy boot slammed onto his spine, pinning him down. There was a popping of snaps, a creak of a leather harness, and finally a loud metallic click as a hammer was cocked. So long, Jake. Any last words? Mama always liked me best, Sullivan grunted, sputtering out a bloody laugh. Maddie aimed the beast at the back of Jake's head. If he had more time, he'd let his brother know just how much this moment meant to him. He could actually feel. It was a bittersweet victory, and the old, weak, sickly part of him was screaming, No! But he pushed that part back down into the deep well where he kept it chained in black, poisoned waters. He pulled the trigger. Then there was a snap of air and a pair of grey eyes shining in the dark as Jake vanished. The bullet dug a 50 caliber hole in the ground. Maddie looked up at the mansion, a snarl parting his ruined lips. I'm getting so tired of her. Hirayasu's zombies were passing them, charging blindly toward the house. The morons didn't even realize they were dead yet. Some of them were shooting, screaming, bones sticking out their faces, or dragging their intestines behind them in long, steaming trails. About damn time. A few of the living goons approached him cautiously, carrying their new Arisaka sub-guns, following the zombies. Those were the brave and stupid. The cowards in the ranks had probably bolted and run as soon as they'd realized he wasn't about to waste any perfectly good corpses. He glared at the remaining men. What? We've almost got the- A rifle bullet hit him in the shoulder, tore through his flesh until it struck his collarbone and shattered. He grimaced as the fragments tore a dozen separate wound channels through his flesh, and a chunk of bone pierced his heart. Damn it. Even he had his limits, and time was almost up. Toshiko was yelling at him that they needed to fire soon or risk discovery. No matter what, the Imperium couldn't afford to be implicated. It was time to finish this. He followed the blood trail of the dead mob, murder in his wounded heart. That
1: was Part 38 of the complete audiobook Serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And giant fountains of happily dancing water and stars for Catherine Asero, author of Undercity, now at Booksellers Everywhere. Please join us next time here at the Hammering Heart of Science Fiction and Fantasy Storytelling. And keep reaching for the stars.
2: We're Santa's elves in the workshop, making lots of toys for good girls and boys!